Well, welcome back, everybody, to Hello at Live Longer, the podcast. And today we continue our series on the art of healthy longevity. And I have a really, really interesting guest in studio with me. And I know for those of you who've been listening, you're going to say she says that about everybody. But I truly mean it because I've known this person for over two decades and they are inspirational. He is the professor Emeritus Professor of Medicine at University College Cork, my own alma mater, and I'm very proud to say so. He trained in University College Dublin and graduated with an honours degree, moved to McMaster University in Canada and studied immunology. And then he moved to the uh, west coast of the United States and at UCLA trained as a gastroenterologist where he practised for quite a number of years before we were lucky enough to entice him back this side of the pond and he became the Professor of Medicine at University College Cork. Now, this gentleman is not only an academic and a professor of medicine, a teacher, he's also a very talented researcher, having spent most of his earlier career studying inflammatory bowel disease and then migrating as a natural extension into the microbiome. And not only that, but he set up the world's first microbiome centre, the APC, which is still going to this day and has co-founded a number of other successful startups also. He's won a number of prizes, including the Royal Irish Academy Gold Medal, and he's listed as the top 1% of scientists in the world. Not only has he had published 570 scientific papers, but he's now an author of a very seminal book called The Language of Illness. And I'm really looking forward to taking a very deep dive into this because it goes to the heart of the matter from one doctor to another, from one clinician to another and from one patient to another. We need to understand these issues. So this gentleman, I want to interview him not only because of his reputation, which precedes him and stands for himself, but because I know him to be a compassionate, empathetic human being, an intelligent person. And I can't wait to explore some of the deeper issues like what does help us live longer, healthier lives and how can we change the world? So join me in welcoming Professor Fergus Shanahan. Fergus, welcome. Thank you. Thank you indeed. Well, it's lovely to have you here. And as I said, I've known you for so long now. And, you know, some of the questions I'm going to ask today were questions that I really wanted to ask you the very first time I met you. And when you, you know, trained myself and so many others on how to be precise. And we always looked up to you. We were, you know, we're in awe of your achievements, but also how you could be so down to earth. And one of the things that always was at the back of my mind was what drove you and what was the inspiration behind all of this incredible work? Well, I don't know the answer to that. I have thought a bit about it. What I did in life was um, probably directed by my mother. I didn't do medicine for all the reasons that most people tell you. It wasn't for some profound sense of altruism. My mother told me to do medicine and she was right. I didn't question her, but she was right. But I suppose what one acquires after that is the driving factor. And I think the driving factor, at, at least an element of it for me, was curiosity. I'm just interested in people and how they work. And curiosity, of course, needs to be fed. But as one feeds it and as it grows, I think it becomes addictive. And um, so it's curiosity that drove my interest in medicine and people and caring for people. And, it, and people are what drove me to do research. And my research has always been in some way about people. I may have uh, done some experiments with animals that could not be done with humans, but it was always with a view 
to doing something that could improve or ameliorate the suffering that that people experience, which I would witness in my daily practice. Well, just to pick you up on that about the curiosity about people, I mean, one of the things that you said you're most proud of in terms of research was this concept of engaged research. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Because it really cuts to the chase in terms of your point about curiosity about people, about research and really trying to bring, you know, the bedside back to the bench and then to the bench and again. Yes. Well, engaged research has become a popular term uh, amongst policymakers. And I never thought of myself as doing engaged research because I didn't know that word. But in actual fact, that is what I was doing. Engaged research really means bi-directional communication with the patients, the, the people that you're doing the research on. In other words, listening to the patient securing information from the patient that would guide the questions that would be asked in the research. So most of the things I've done actually were based on issues or problems that patients shared with me. In some cases, they were very specific questions, such as on one occasion, I was commenting that radiology, diagnostic radiation, had actually changed the practice of of medicine and put it largely in the outpatient setting and improved uh, the speed at which I could make diagnoses of patients with bowel disorders. But one patient who had Crohn's disease pointed out that she'd had several CT scans. And while one CT scan, you know, has a significant amount of radiation, the, the overall outcome is beneficial. But, but if you have multiple CT scans throughout a lifetime, particularly if one is young, then uh, the cumulative dose of radiation exposure could be substantial. That led, we weren't the first, but that led us to do an audit of that in gastroenterology and we published it. And it was linked with an editorial in the, in the major gastroenterology journal of the day pointing out our work. And it then led me to do a controlled trial of the images that one would receive if one does the conventional dose of CT scanning versus a reduced dose. And we were able to show in Crohn's disease there was no need to be using high radiation exposures for CT scanning, that one could use uh, one quarter of the dose that's normally used. So we made CT scanning, at least in our region, relatively safe, quite safe actually, and it changed our practice. Now, nowadays, we would use MR and other, other strategies, but where one has to use CT, that one question that stemmed from the patient led to a change in practice and a change in policy in our health region. And there have been several other issue, examples of that type of thing where patients initiated the research. Well, I think the really interesting thing about that as well is, uh, Fergus, you listen to the patient, but also that actually does help your patients live longer, healthier, because the radiation can be so damaging. And many of these patients have chronic, Ill they all have chronic illness and they're going to need follow up. So that was a huge contribution before the advent of MR and routine practice, wasn't it? I think so. And I think it shows the value of of listing the people, you know, the, the people who fund our research have a right, of course, to expect that we do be doing something useful. They don't have a right to tell us what we're interested in. But if one is interested in people and listens to people, it is remarkable how many times they will prompt the direction of research. I had another one. I used to have a saying that I picked up in medicine that doctors are often taught. They, there is an expression in medicine, you are as old as your arteries. These are the blood vessels that carry blood from the heart to the tissues. 
And one can see with smokers, if you have identical twins, you can you can spot the smoker a mile off because the smoker will look older than the than the uh, non-smoker. But I said this to a patient one day in an effort to try and get the person to stop smoking because smoking is is so adverse to the clinical course of Crohn's disease, which was the particular problem this lady had. And she said, but um, does the microbiome, does do the bugs? She knew what my research was in microbiome. That is the the uh, living material that's in and on our bodies, all the bacteria and viruses and, and yeast that are in and on our body. She asked me, did that have any bearing on the aging process? And that led us to actually uh, do what was has been probably the most productive phase of my career and is particularly relevant to your interest in longevity. Mm. But it was initiated by a patient's question. Interesting. And have you shown that the microbiome can indeed improve longevity? Well, what has been shown is that the micro, and we, we are not the only ones, but we and others have followed the microbiome at different ages. And we were able to show that the microbiome is relatively stable in middle age, but then starts to progressively diverge from what we call a normal picture. And it becomes more, uh, some people called unique. I don't like that word to describe it, but more divergent. Uh, so people, elderly people differ quite a bit from one another. They lose keystone uh, microbes, in other words, microbes that are particularly critical for protection against disease. And they acquire an increasing number of what are referred to as pathobionts. That's just a big word for organisms that have a greater potential to cause disease. And that has been linked with inflammation and that accelerates aging. By aging, I mean things like cognitive decline and osteoporosis and frailty, particularly frailty. Now, what impressed me the, the most was a study we did in Cork about six years ago. It was published in Nature, which is the, our top journal. And we showed that when patients go into long-stay resident uh, care, they tend to collapse their dietary diversity. In other words, they, they, they get enough calories and nutrients, but they tend to, to go more towards monotonous diets, in part because they don't have the dentition to, to, to munch certain fibrous foods, and in part because of physiological changes, but partly just because of convenience. They tend to be given these milk-based monotonous diets. So loss of diversity is followed by a loss of diversity in the microbiome. They lose organisms because when we eat, we're not just feeding ourselves, we're feeding the bacteria and uh, microbes in our bodies. And if you don't feed them, you lose them. Now, what made that important was we were able to show an association between that and frailty, objective measures of frailty. And we were able to also show a relationship with objective measures of inflammation. And my colleague, Professor Paul O'Toole, has taken it a step further where he did a controlled trial of a Mediterranean diet over a year in large numbers of Europeans and was able to show that if you change the diet, diversify it, and particularly with a Mediterranean diet, you can't reverse the frailty, but you can slow down its progression and you can reverse the microbiome losses of, of the elderly. So... There's, there are lots of things. Aging is a complex issue, but the microbiome is at least one of the major contributors uh, to aging and age-related diseases. 
That's interesting. I mean, the, the next obvious question linked to that and you saying the diet becomes more restricted as one gets older. Do you subscribe to the concept of um, a diverse diet like Tim Spector, who I interviewed last week, who would say that we really need to diversify our diet in order to prevent chronic disease and, and improve longevity? I mean, is that the holy grail or is there more factors in terms of reducing frailty? I wouldn't say it's the holy grail, but it is an important thing. It's one thing that we are all in control of. And it is a, a definite lesson to traditional dietitians and food scientists and uh, people who will come to us and will assess the diet of patients in long-stay institutions and say, yes, it's nutritionally adequate. But all they have traditionally been doing is counting calories and looking at the essential nutrients they have not included diversity as part of it. And it led actually to the title of an editorial in the Guardian newspaper when they saw our paper. They actually said that uh, that we had shown that diversity is not just spice of life, it's actually staple. So it must be included when one assesses the adequacy and quality of anyone's diet. So certainly diversity in diet is important to maintain uh, microbial diversity. Um, there is more to it than that, but that's certainly one key factor that is within our control. Okay. And so my understanding is, you know, the diverse diet can do a lot towards repatriating a broken microbiome, for the want of a better word. But is there anything else? Can you, you know, give a probiotic, for instance, Fergus? Are you a subscriber to that to enrich the microbiome or is that not how it works for the lay people who might not understand a lot about the microbiome and how to alter it? A diverse diet in most cases, will replenish your microbiome. But if you've lost certain keystone bacteria, if they have, if because of lack of feeding them, because of a lack of a dietary diversity, you have lost them, you can't recover them. You will have to replace them. That's where the um, replacements with with organisms, some people call them probiotics, live biotherapeutics, live microbes, that's where they come in. But... Um, our study in humans was actually replicated in mice where they withdrew dietary diversity and the animals lost then microbial diversity and aged faster. But one does get to a stage where if you've lost them, you've lost them and you can't restore them without just by diet alone. So there is a tipping point. And that's where, as I said, the, the probiotics or the, the other agents come in, live microbes to replace. I do feel there is a language problem with the term probiotics, however, because they're not all the same. And this is the key point I'd like to make about them. Um, probiotics are defined as live microbes that which, when given in adequate dosages, adequate amounts, can have a health benefit. But one has to be very careful about that and one has to be absolutely precise about the actual identity of the organism that you're calling a probiotic because they aren't all the same. And to say are probiotics good or bad is like saying are pills, are tablets bad? One wouldn't use those terms. One would say which tablet and for what purpose? So an organism that is qualifies for the term probiotic, that is can give a health benefit to someone in one particular context, won't necessarily work for another person in a different context. So I tend not to use the word. I tend to use the specific term for the organism that one is giving. And I have been involved in developing some of those organisms for very specific reasons. So the one I, I was involved in developing 
is called Bifidobacterium uh, 35624, and it was given for inf- irritable bowel syndrome, but I would never claim it, be- it works in other situations. Uh, so again, specificity of the terms is, is, the, is the key thing. And of course, irritable bowel syndrome is a condition that affects many people. Um, can they actually buy this replacement bacteria? Is this what Alflurex is? Yes, that is what Alflurex is. I, I'm not here to, to promote any particular commercial enterprise, but and my advice to people is that is available. But my advice to people when looking for something like that is to first look for the quality control on it. Look to see is it a reputable company. Look to see if there have been scientific studies that back up the claims. And for sure, look to see the quality control on the actual product. There are many that are cannot be supported. It is an area where quality is everything. And look to see if there have been has been good science supporting it. Yeah, and I think Tim Spector really echoed that last week with his new book, Spoonfed, where, you know, he laments the paucity of lack of good science. Now, we're fortunate to have you here today where you have done good science in many of these areas and you are speaking from a position of strength. For instance, your study with the travellers, the Irish travelling community, I was fascinated to read that. And I think that would be of interest to our listeners as well, how taking people out of their natural environment, you might help one thing, but actually people might lose their protection against another condition. What would be your summary of that seminal study? Well, that study um, just appeared about six months ago or so in in Nature Medicine, which is another one of our top journals. And it began again with engaged research, really. I had uh, looked after, uh, my clinic had huge numbers of patients with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And I ran that for over 30 years. Now, the Irish travellers are an ethnic minority in Ireland. They're not the same as Roma uh, or uh, so-called gypsies in continental Europe. They are, in fact, genetically Irish. So they are a distinct subset of the Irish. And they represent about 1% of the population. So I knew that I should have been seeing about 20 of those of travellers in my clinic with inflammatory bowel disease. And you see, one, one cannot hide with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. These, these conditions come to attention uh, because you can't hide with bloody diarrhea or with the wasting illness of Crohn's disease. You have to come to attention. And when I asked colleagues about other conditions, other immune-mediated conditions like multiple sclerosis, conditions that demand attention, that would have to come before uh, a hospital-based clinic, I found that the travellers appear to be protected from these immune-mediated and allergic disorders. And uh, I set out to study that. Now, the the travellers do have other diseases. They do get all the diseases of poverty and and discrimination and marginalisation that one would see in any ethnic minority. But you could have two things happening at the same time. And I wondered, could it be that the travellers were protected because of their microbiome? We compared uh, about 120 Irish travellers uh, within a small region in the, in the Cork area uh, to control for geography. We knew they were Irish, so there's no genetic confounder. And um, we were simply comparing an ancient way of life with the uh, modern way of life. So Ireland is a socioeconomically developed, industrialised country. But the travellers have been living a lifestyle on the edge of that society for a long time and they don't intermarry with the settled community. And we found 
that they had a microbiome that was akin to what one sees with ancient societies, uh, hunter-gatherers in Tanzania, uh, uh, Mongolian uh, horsemen, uh, Peruvian farmers. These are there have been a few studies of these ancient civilizations, ancient ways of farming uh, that have what's called a non-industrialized microbiome, which is quite distinct from what one sees in the rest of the world. And we compared the travelers with the rest of the Irish and then against 3,000 people scattered around the developed world. And the travelers uh, had a unique microbiome. And the question then is, are we helping them by forcing their assimilation? And has this relevance to other minority groups that might migrate to the UK and to Ireland and to the Western world in general when we think we're helping them by forcing their, their assimilation in with the rest of society? And that may not be the best thing for them. They have to preserve some aspects of their culture to retain their microbiome. Because we found that it wasn't just the types of organisms that the travelers had. They had specific functional capacities and enzymes and metabolic capacity that the rest of us don't have. And I think they have retained it, whereas we have lost it. Do you think that maybe life has become just too complicated and this simplicity of life, maybe the pandemic might bring back some of our ancient microbiome to us by being more simple? I think what we're seeing with the travellers is actually, if you like, a human model right before our eyes of what happens when you modernise society. Now, of course, when you modernise society, it brings affluence, it brings uh, hygiene, it brings uh, certain rewards, it brings education, uh, it, it brings a lot, lot of things that are beneficial to a majority of society. But if we didn't study the microbiome, we wouldn't realise that coincidental with all that, we are losing things. It's not about not eating dirt. And some people mis mistake this for uh, claim that sanitized environment and, and excessive hygiene is causing all this problem. It's not that. There are multiple elements to a modern life, uh, a lifestyle, which include dietary changes, exposure to antibiotics is a big impact on our microbiome, but even the size of our families and, and the, the way our homes, larger homes, it reduces your chance of sharing microbes. You see, the, the travelers were nomadic once, and we were able to study those who were nomadic in childhood but are now living in a house. And we were able to study those who had changed their, their, their lifestyle. And those who have attempted to retain the old way of life, they can't be nomadic anymore, but they still can live in small caravans, uh, large families in close quarters, share their microbes and are more likely to retain them. Whereas if you've got a small family, and the average in Ireland now is 1.3 siblings per family living in these big houses, the opportunity to share microbes has diminished. So it may be subtle things like that. And one other thing we found with the travellers, it was exposure to animals, domestic and otherwise, pets. Exposure to animals in childhood was one of the three major factors that contributed to them retaining what we would regard as a desirable or healthy microbiome. Whereas we've lost that. Well, I think it's time for us all to reflect on on how our lives have gone. And, you know, for example, you as a busy researcher all of your life, I mean, how do you maintain your microbiome and your health, Fergus, if I might ask? Well, I'm ageing like everyone else. We all age. But one of the things I've learned from studying inflammatory bowel disease and the elderly 
is again to use that word engagement. Uh, I think if the elderly get marginalised, put into uh, safe but potentially hazardous uh, social conditions, housing conditions, without contact from the, the outside world, and of course that was aggravated with COVID, without engagement, they don't get the chance to experience uh, the external environment. They don't ex- get a chance to be exposed to animals. They don't get a chance to share microbes with young people and other people. And that is part of their loss of microbiota. It isn't just diet. So uh, I believe in remaining engaged with people and living life to the full until I collapse. <laughs> That's good. And what else do you do? So I, I remember we had a giggle when we were planning this podcast and, and you said that I also believe in doing nothing. And I thought that was fascinating for somebody so productive. Tell us. I do. I do believe in a bit of idleness. Um, I do believe in being alone with, with your thoughts. And that's what you do when you go out for a walk. That's what you do if you like to go jogging. Um, being alone with your thoughts is, in my view, quite a helpful thing to do. And so I do enjoy that. Um, but I, so I've just said I like engagement as well. You can't really appreciate engagement with your family and with your friends uh, if you don't know the other side. So I like to balance being alone with my thoughts, but also uh, spending time with friends and family. And one of the things I dearly miss is the opportunity to go to pubs and have a few drinks and conversation to explore curiosity and to talk about everything under the sun. Uh, a lot of us have forgotten what pubs are like. They're these ancient things that ancient humans used to used to do and enjoy. And I hope we'll have more of it back again soon. Well, today the pubs are open and there were queues from early this morning in the UK. <laughs> so, And they are a wonderful institution. When I worked in the United States, where they're called bars and they have a slightly sleazy con- uh, con- connotation, people couldn't understand when I said, I miss the pubs back in the UK and Ireland. They are a marvellous institution and we should never let them go. Yeah, well, I mean, I haven't lived in Ireland for a long time, but, you know, everything seemed to begin and end in the pub in Ireland. That isn't to say that we'd all go crazy drinking. It was a social gathering, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, so and I think the same is true in the UK. We, we we learned it from the UK, but we're happy to learn that. I think um, it, it is, a, you're quite right, it is a social institution. And it's not to say that, that it's the, it's all about alcohol, but it is about meeting people and uh, engaging with people because we are social animals. Yeah, and the sense of community is very, very important, particularly when you have an illness or a problem in in life. And and this brings me to your book, actually, The Language of Illness, because, you know, we've heard a lot about your research and what your interests are. But what was um, the defining moment that you decided you'd write this book I've probably been writing it for the last 40 years, but I've learned everything that's in the book I've learned from my patients. I don't think there's anything in there that that, that I didn't really pick up by listening to patients. And um, so it is an attempt. When I came to publish it, somebody said to me, but don't don't people know this already? And I said, well, if people know this already, why is it still a problem? And why do patients continually say to me that they occasionally would feel that they spoke a language different from that of their doctors? And I would hope that I didn't commit all those mistakes, but I'm sure I, I committed some of them. Um, it is uh, an attempt to point out that doctors speak disease speak. They are trained to speak disease speak. Disease speak is the words that we use 
to describe diseases, and disease is the objective evidence of something wrong with a person. It's the signs, it's the lab tests, it's, it's x-rays, it's, it's what we see when one examines the patient. But illness is the language that patients speak. Illness is the lived experience of disease. And while disease is interesting for my research, illness is far more coloured and nuanced and varied than disease. It, it, disease is black and white to me and grey, perhaps. But illness is far more coloured and nuanced and much more interesting. And I think doctors spend a lot of time speaking disease-speak and need to spend more time on the illness words. So a big part of my book is on the illness words, words like suffering that doctors rarely like to use, burden, waiting, uncertainty, time, dignity, uh, even humour, trust, uh, these are words that I think need to feature a lot more uh, when doctors meet patients. But there's a second reason for doing it. The language that doctors use can actually do harm. And I think we're a couple of centuries too late in re reminding ourselves of that. The language of doctors should connect, not separate them from their patients. But in fact, I think medical speak has a distancing effect. I think it's pompous. It's full of obfuscation, and I list all those in the, in the book. It's quite imprecise, even though we aim for precision. In fact, much of the language of medicine is imprecise, full of misnomers and ambiguity and paradoxes. And occasionally, it leaks into becoming offensive and stigmatizing. We even use names for diseases that if the patients really knew, they would actually be horrified. Uh, words like... in, in, in in, in your discipline, there are words like Wegener's granulomatosis, Reiter's syndrome, even Asperger's disease that's so popularly named now. Mm. None of these individuals would one like a son or daughter to be named after. None of these individuals, while they did uh, contribute to medicine, uh, they have very dark pasts uh, from Nazi Germany that, um, when exposed, I think are quite disturbing. So we use names like that that we should we should have stopped using a long time ago. Um, you often hear doctors refer to the IBD patient, the obese patient. No one is defined by their disease. They are always patients with the disease, but not disease patients. There's a big difference between calling someone an IBD patient and a patient with IBD. But it gets worse. Um, not only are the words uh, offensive at times, but we use metaphors that patients repeatedly tell us we should not use. For example, we talk about, and the journalists are always doing it, but they learned it from us, that they say things like John Diamond lost his battle with cancer. Hmm. You may remember John Diamond was a, a journalist and wrote a book about his experience while he was dying from a, from a cancer and pleaded with the obituaries that would come later pleaded with them not to say he lost his battle with cancer because he pointed out he wasn't battling cancer. Cancer was battling him. And he hated, as many of my patients do, they hate that war metaphor, that battle metaphor. But the first thing that appeared in the obituary a few days after he died was John Diamond lost his battle with, with, with cancer, even though he had explicitly asked them and had published in articles that they not do that. Mm. There are numerous examples in the book of doctors uh, being offensive in their language. But I even found even with the questions I would ask, it took me some time to realise 
that I myself were, were, was making mistakes. Uh, I'll give you one very simple example. I, I, it's very important for me to know if a patient is smoking because a tiny amount of cigarette smoke adversely affects the course of Crohn's disease. So it was an important question for me, and I would repeat it, repeatedly see in a chart where the house officer would have written down non-smoker. But I would go in and ask the question again, and I would find quite frequently that what was in the chart was wrong. But, you know, I would say things like then, I used to say, are you a smoker? And that would elicit a response, no. Hmm. But then I would say, do you smoke? And the patient might say, well, I do smoke a little, but I wouldn't call myself a smoker. So the noun, the, the descriptor, are you a smoker, was something that they recoiled against. They didn't like that term, but they would admit to smoking if I used the verb, do you smoke? So little subtleties, doctors need to know that, they, that the language they use can change the answers and the responses of patients. And there have been many well-educated doctors, nurses, not a healthcare workers, who, when they became ill themselves, it was an epiphany. They realized they'd been misusing language all their careers. Uh, but it was only when they were the patient that they realized this. And I think that's a really good, important point that I want to pick up on, actually, Fergus. Sorry to interrupt you. But, you know, for example, from my perspective, I'm a doctor and my daughter got cancer when she was 18 months. Now, I know we have something in common because your son also got cancer and, and you've permitted me to say that. And I want to talk about it because... That experience had a profound effect for me. I used to think I was good at talking to patients, but after I went through that experience with her, I realised how probably terribly awful I was. And it did change me and it made me more careful, more precise, and it made me want to give information that patients actually understood. It made me want to speak in a different language. So do you think part of this book came from that you know, um, experience in your life with your son? Yes, part of it did. I, and in fact, I I parachuted in a small piece. It's the story of yeah, my son and myself going to a cancer center. And the outcome was, was good, but uh, little things like the way in which we are treated by the receptionist, the first, ex the first experience when one goes terrified and small acts of kindness have a huge effect on someone who's stressed and worried about the simplest of things, even even just the way in which one asks for the details, uh, the address, the zip code, the postal code, those kinds of things. I refer to it in the book as Dr. Nocebo. I point out that the doctor can have a placebo effect, but if doctors can help by their kindness and by their caring and by their good use of language, they can also do an awful lot of harm with their careless use of language. And I've, I've referred to stigma earlier on, but yes, my son's illness, it, it surely did. And since then, I now point out to patients if they have received a diagnosis of uh, a serious illness, not some trivial illness, but something potentially serious, not necessarily cancer. But in the modern era, one often has to see a family practitioner, then a specialist and perhaps another specialist and maybe a physiotherapist, a dietitian, a pharmacist. Lots of people along the way are involved in any illness story. But I always point out to them now from our experience with my son, I point out that along the way, you will get different people give you slightly different recommendations and advice, uh, even details about blood tests and important things. Be prepared for people to loosely 
use words and loosely refer to your history, but it'll often be wrong and imprecise and you'll just have to be steal yourself for that because no one will care as much about it as you will uh, and be ready for that kind of loose imprecision about details, figures, blood tests, x-ray tests, appointments, and be ready for it. And I'm afraid that's another place where we could improve if we did less disease speak and more illness speak. Yes, I think I think the patient does need to advocate, which is sad they shouldn't. But particularly in the cancer journey, I can attest to that. I had to advocate for my own daughter. I have two really special friends going through very severe cancer journeys at the moment and they have been through hell and back and a lot of this could have been avoided maybe by people understanding listening and one lady in particular I won't obviously name her but she was a very eminent opera singer and she had her whole career taken away from her because you know cancer did that cancer robs you another lady at the prime of her life she's you know cancer makes one suffer and this is and to recognize that word suffering is so important important and not be afraid to talk to your friends about what they're missing and what they're suffering about rather than shying away from the conversations. And that came out in your book too, didn't it? Yes. Simple language serves as well. I'm deeply suspicious of big words uh, if they need an explanation. Now, I, I fully accept that there are certain technical words one has to use in certain specialties, but they're vanishingly few. Hmm. And patients can cope with that quite quickly. The layperson cops that very quickly and will learn. But there are fewer of these technical words that doctors need to use than people realise. I'd also point out that the system is guilty also. And we had some wonderful examples. Well, they're not wonderful, some terrible examples of that during COVID. And they're ongoing. And they're happening in the NHS in the UK, in the Irish healthcare system. And my colleagues in Canada and the United States say the same thing is happening there. For example, the system it loves these words like non-elective procedures and mm. elective procedures, elective appointments and non-elective. And of course, none of us uh, complained about the cancellation of certain operations uh, during the COVID crisis. But the system didn't distinguish between essential and non-essential. The word elective kind of implies unimportant. Mm -hmm. It's possible to have something that is elective, but it is highly important. And none of us would say that you have to have a cosmetic operation during a COVID crisis, but a different kind of operation, like for some people, a hip replacement could actually be terribly important. Something for a musician who's, who's suffered an injury to a, to a hand could be actually essential for their livelihood. Um, cancer has progressed in many patients because their appointments at clinics were seen to be elective and could be deferred. Uh, I, I, I absolutely reject that. And I think some of this has arisen because of simple glib use of words like elective and non-elective and failure to distinguish that within elective, there is the non-essential, but there is the essential as well. Yes, I think precision and language is what you're really um, mentioning there. And I think it's very important. But, but sometimes, don't you think, Fergus, as well as language, art and pictures can speak a thousand words. And I'd like to take you now into a little bit of a discussion about the art, because one of the pieces of art, the bandaged heart, you've um, allowed us 
borrow to put on our website to advertise this podcast really resonates. It's a piece of sculpture. It's dedicated in memory to a wonderful colleague of mine, his his wife, Dr. Catherine Malloy. And you actually allow people to go up and touch this heart in the University Hospital in Cork, don't you? Yes, it it was a it's a piece by it's it's one of my favorite pieces of public art, and it's public because we made it public. Uh, the artist donated it for a very reasonable uh, price, so we bought it. It was on exhibition in the Luxman Art Gallery in Cork. We we hosted uh, a symposium in 2012 and 2013. It ran for for several months on learning from the arts, learning about illness from the arts. That's what the exhibition was about. In other words, what can art teach us about the experience of illness? So it featured um, many different ex- exhibits from some world famous artists. Uh, Bandaged Heart was one I particularly liked because I noticed that when people came into the art gallery, it's a piece of stainless steel. It's a heart with a bandage around it. So it's very simple. But as immediately recognisable as a heart. And uh, people liked to go up and touch it. And we allowed that, of course. It is meant to be touched. And I like it because it is, in one level, a personal metaphor. I I, I spoke a moment ago, but I hate the battle metaphor, people losing their battle uh, against disease. And and, and I pointed out it's not a battle. And they, they, they shouldn't be blamed if they lose the battle. They're not losers. But Bandaged Heart was, it's by Cecily Brennan and it is inspired by the lines from the poet Dennis O'Driscoll who wrote, The heart should be cast in steel to spare it human feelings. Wrapped in a bow, bandages, tourniquet to stem, the flow of blood corroded arteries. So the heart should be wrapped, cast in steel. His point was, we're all so vulnerable. And to me, it's a metaphor for the vulnerability of life, the fragility of life and the universal need for us to support each other. Uh, so we installed it in, in the at the entrance to the Cork University Hospital, dedicated. Uh, it's in honour of a particular uh, patient advocate, Dr. Catherine Malloy, but it is given to the people of Cork who have broken hearts from loss and from illness, either themselves or their families. So it's for broken hearts and it's a representation of the bandaged heart and an invitation for people to come and touch the heart and offer some support and help and kindness. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, I, you know, I, I will have to go and visit it again soon. It's a really, really beautiful story. Thank you, Fergus. Well, we've talked a lot about your research, about your writings, about your really strong beliefs, which are really, really important. And, and I think you're probably one of the first people to be brave enough to stand out there and tell us that we need to learn a different language. And this podcast is in conjunction with Homerton Changemakers Programme. And clearly the message that I'm hearing that you might suggest as a changemaking message is different communication, more thoughtful communication, more precise communication. Is that how you would change the medical world, Fergus? Yes, it's it's not nitpicking. I, I, I'd quickly run to say it's not nitpicking and doctors need to 
not assume that they know it already. It is true that medical schools do put on communication skills for doctors, but a lot of that, in my view, is within the realm of common sense. We shouldn't have to be taught as university graduates how to look people in face-to-face and eye-to-eye. So it's not that type of communication. It's about thinking about the words you use, and they're not complex. The simplest message is, use the same words that your patient uses. There isn't any need for a lot of the disease speak. And if you use the illness words, it won't lead one astray. I'll give one final example. Well, I'll give two examples if I, if I have time. One is from the COVID crisis, where a woman was shown on the cover of the New York Times not long ago, totally distressed. And she had a brush in one hand with, with hair uh, falling out. And the article was about hair shedding that occurs with COVID. And as the article started, it began with terms like hair shedding. That was the word that the woman used. But then it led on to the word balding and then from balding to alopecia, which is the medical term for baldness. And of course, she had none of that. She simply had something that is normally an accompaniment of any acute, sudden onset, stressful situation, whether it be psychological or physical such as COVID, but it can happen with something physiological like pregnancy. So pregnant women will frequently, uh, or women who've had an operation, or males, will frequently notice that they get hair thinning after some physical or psychological trauma. And it's predictable. We know about it. It's not progressive and it's reversible. It always reverses and it never causes balding. And it has a medical name, but I won't mention because it's not necessary. But all it needs is reassurance. And if doctors stayed away from medical words like alopecia, which is of no value in this situation, and stuck with hair shedding, then their bad language wouldn't corrupt their logic and they wouldn't be prescribing silly things, as happened to that particular woman. More recently, you may have seen a a documentary on British TV. I think the journalist was Davina McCall and she was speaking about menopause. And we've had a series of outcries from women on Irish radio within the past week speaking about menopause and the misinformation and the myths about this. And uh, in some cases, the women pointed out that their doctors hadn't provided an adequate service. And it wasn't just male doctors. Most of our doctors now in Ireland and perhaps in the UK, at least half of them for the last 30 years have been women, but now it's the majority are women. So I concluded from that that perhaps women need to be more kind to women when speaking about menopause. Mm. But my point I want to make is in medical school, doctors are thought disease speak, as I said earlier. And if you continually speak disease speak, you might dismiss menopause as being something that's not a disease that's physiological and will happen to everyone and not truly engage with the words that the women were using. Because if one engaged with the words women have been using, one would realize that there is real suffering there for some of them. Hmm. And that might trigger people to listen more carefully and to be kind to one another. And it isn't just about a gender issue, males not understanding women. I'm a man, I can never never experience what it's like to have a female menopause, but I can have understanding and I can have some empathy and, and, and kindness. But women also need to be kind to women. But female doctors, if they use illness words instead of disease words, they might actually have learned something a bit sooner than what they had to learn within recent weeks. I think that's a really, really good point. And that's a really nice 
point for us to close this because I think it brings full circle what I said at the beginning that the reason why I wanted to interview you, Fergus, is that you, of course, have so many accomplishments, but really you seem to have empathy, have compassion, have understanding of patience of people. And then when you harness that with your knowledge and your learnings and the research, you really can make a difference to people's lives. And I think we've all learned a lot about how we enable as clinicians our patients to feel better, but how we can speak more kindly to one another and understand one another and all learn a different language as we emerge post the pandemic. So I want to thank you so much for giving up your time today, Fergus. You're more than welcome. It's been really, really interesting. Thank you so much. And I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in today. And I hope you've enjoyed this session with Professor Shanahan as much as I have. And I think he's given an awful lot for us to reflect on. And I would encourage you to reach out and have a read of his book, The Language of Illness, available through Liberties Press. We've put a link on our website. I've certainly enjoyed dipping in and dipping out of it. You don't have to read the whole thing at the one go. In fact, I encourage you to read chapter by chapter every now and again. It's much more informative. There's so much information packed into it. And tune in next week when we're interviewing Siraj Thakur, who is going to tell us a little bit about sustainable food delivery around the London area. And this will be another very, very inspirational story about how he's delivering food that is of high quality and is nourishing for those that need it the most. Thanks for joining us. And if you want to leave any feedback, please email us on hello at livelongerthepodcast.com. Bye for now.